Good afternoon, good morning, or good evening, and welcome to the American Age Podcast. This is C. Travis Webb, editor of the American Age, and I am speaking to you from Southern California, where it is pretty sunny, pretty warm for autumn. Oh, <laughs> so um, folks, I'm just in a, I'm a bit of a daze right now. This is Stephen G. Fullwood. I'm the co-founder of the Nomadic Archivist Project. I think I'm in Harlem, but I really might be in Andromeda or maybe hanging around uh, the Orion's Belt right now. So, um, and it's kind of cold up there. <laughs> Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. I'm Seth Rodney, and I'm a senior editor at Hyperlogic, and I've just written a book, uh, which was uh, produced in May of this year. Uh, the personalization of the museum visit is its title, and I'm in the South Bronx, and the light's starting to fade, and that's mm, slightly distressing to me. It's not dark yet, but it's getting there. No, but it's uh, coming. Yeah. Uh, this is to remind our listeners that we practice a form of what we like to call intellectual intimacy, giving each other the space and time to figure out things out loud and together. And a reminder that our co-host Sarah Bond is not with us uh, again this week, so because of personal and professional responsibilities that keep her away. So, but we will be very happy to have her back soon. Um, and we're continuing our conversation uh, around the 1619 project. I think we kind of talked informally, maybe one, two more episodes after this, so this, and then maybe do a summation episode after that. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, today we're going to talk about um, what Stephen had coined, or not coined, but characterized from, from other readings that he has done uh, on the topic, medical apartheid. So which is uh, mm. the ways in which race as a social category has influenced the kind of medicine that we practice and the kind of treatments that doctors offer. Certainly, historically, which is probably not surprising to anyone that doctors in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries, uh, even 20th century, treated uh, non-whites and whites differently. Um, but that that process and the legacy of that process has continued into the 21st century. So um, we're going to ground it in one of the essays in particular, So, but I've talked a lot. So, Seth or Stephen, do you guys want to introduce us to the essay and the topic, and, and we can go from there? So... Um, uh... Linda Villarosa writes about it from the perspective of um, the myths that uh, that that sort of enveloped the black body and have since slavery to um, um, the doctors performed uh, experiments on black people because uh, one was Do Dr. Thomas Hamilton, who was obsessed with proving that phys the physiological differences between black and white people. So. Um, <laughs> he wasn't the only one. It was a, num a number of doctors that were, I, I'm not sure what the, 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 the impulse was or the, like, why, right? I don't understand why. But these kinds of sort of experiments, along with the Tuskegee um, experiment, where several, I think 65 black men were, um, were injected with syphilis without them knowing it, and it was a study uh, that a lot of these men ended up dying or getting really sick and so forth. Um, so when I read this piece by Linda Villarosa, it hit me personally, but also like generally with me personally, but also with literature. So I'm going to say me and then I'm going to go back to the literature later on. But me personally, I have a doctor or I had a doctor, uh, an MD, um, a very nice guy. Let me just start off by saying that. I don't know why I need to say it. Um, but that I introduced him, a, a friend of mine, to this particular doctor, and she went to him several times complaining about a pain that she had. And I remember that when I would go to my, 
to the doctor and he and I would talk about things. Sometimes we end up just talking about Malcolm X. And this was a Jewish guy who realized that one day that Malcolm X was not such a bad guy is what he said. <laughs> so this Jewish doctor saw my friend, a woman, and after a few, she came back to me, I think after maybe seeing him for the third time. And she goes, he told me that maybe there's a pain in my past life <laughs> that I need to work out. So I need to go to a past life regressionist or whomever, whoever handles that kind of thing. And what? it struck me as being this interesting. Is a, a medical doctor? This is a medical doctor. And God, so I had two damn. responses to that. The first response was, I'm the woo-woo guy. Come talk to me. I'm the woo-woo <laughs> guy, right? And then, then the other part of it was his inability to maybe see that she had a pain that he couldn't address. So it right. was just, you know, right. past life regression. Go try that, you know. And she said that he, she felt like he was bothered by her. I mean, that she bothered him. And it made me think about his age. It made me think about who he's used to seeing. And then the kind of way that, I mean, if I can interpret it this way, he seemed, when he and I would talk about, and I tell him I had a pain or whatever, ah, you know, it's probably just this, it's probably just that. And I remember thinking of his character as, I don't really know about this. And I'm not really all that interested in trying to figure out. So we'll take some blood or whatever. I'll do my usual stuff. And then I'll just say, get more sleep. Don't eat sugar, blah, blah, blah. Which, in all fairness, could be some of that thing. But I also felt at different times when I would go to him that my my pain wasn't recognized by him. Whether it was physical or emotional, <laughs> right? And so reading this piece, it made me think about why my father doesn't go to the doctor. Not why, but because when I talked to him in the past about it, he would say things like, you know, man, a friend of mine went to a doctor once and he went in there and he was perfect. He, fit, he was just the tip, tip top of, um, you know, of health. And he comes out and the doctor told him he was going to do this and he needed to do that. He had this or whatever. And I told my father, um, the man was probably sick. <laughs> yeah. That's the first thing. So that's not an indication of why you don't need to go to a doctor, but it didn't occur to me that there was a much larger history of a man who was born at home in Louisiana. Yeah. You know, that the, um, when he moved to Arkansas as a kid, you know, that was um, uh, whatever the capital of Arkansas is. Sorry. White people only went to the hospital. Or Everyone else was Little Rock. Home. I'm sorry, Little Rock. Right, Little Rock, Arkansas. And so there were moments where I started to sort of piece together this idea of Doctors are not our friends. <laughs> and going back to Linda Villarosa piece, as well as this other piece, um, it makes me think a lot about how the quality that racism has permeated almost every aspect of American culture. Mm -hmm. You know, whether it's economics, whether it's what we just talked about last in terms of uh, sugar, the production of sugar, plantations, all of this stuff. It feels very... Um, Diet, public health. Yeah. yeah, it's very into the fabric of who we think we are, but also those, 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 really, those experiences that we have with those professionals. Yeah. And what do we do with that, right? How do I tell my father? I told my father, you know, I recently got myself a colonoscopy and I'm cool and all that, whatever. And I don't have the same fear he did mm. or the fears that I've over the years where he's able to talk about it. He doesn't speak very directly. You just pick up here and there. He's not interested in going to no doctor. That man will die at home. <laughs> yeah. That's what the thing is. And so I think that he's a very, um, along with my friend who went to go see my doctor, who <laughs> um, 
is not seeing that doctor anymore. I assume. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Neither of us are. Um, but that 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 suspicion because it's it, there's a history, obviously, and it's and these are just small histories right here with the um, 1619. But it was pretty. Um, it hit home. So I want to say a couple of things, if I if I may. Um, Two, and I, it occurred to me to say this before, um, and maybe I, maybe I'm going to end up saying this every um, second or third podcast because we only we always not always we often end up here, and I'm not sure that this is clear to our listeners, all our listeners, what we mean when we use this phrase. But when we say the black body, mm-hmm. we're talking about a kind of theoretical construct, right? So we're not talking about Stephen's black body or my black body, but we're saying the black body in general in that. It is male or female uh, or trans. Like it is um, a body that is that exists as a kind of as a kind of idea, right, in people's heads, right. right. So just just to be but clear, but a, a lens through that. which particular black bodies then get read, right. So the Jewish doctor that uh, Stephen uh, had a relationship with, professional relationship with, like he had an idea of what constitutes a black body so he had difficulty or we're surmising at least right, that right, he right, had right. difficulty right seeing your pain and rec- recognizing it and recognizing it as valid hold your thought just one second i apologize mm-hmm. i don't want to be no. innocent in this project here in this scenario meaning that there could have been a host of things could have been in the room right, right? in addition to that it could have been me you know i mean it could have been a number of other things but sure. i because sure. because it's coming through my lens I just want to give space to that. That's it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's very... Sure. No, 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 not at all. That's very fair. So I want to bring attention to the piece written by Yah... I'm not sure how to pronounce her last name. Gyasi, G-Y-A-S-I, in the 1619 uh, magazine. She uses a word, and I had to look this up. And oddly enough, it's not in my phone's app. Um, the word she used is iatrovia. Iatro- sorry. Iatrophobia. Iatrophobia, I think. Um, it's not in my dictionary, but the closest word is iatrogenic, which turns out to be relating to illness caused by medical examination or treatment. So what this tells me is that, and she's relating in her piece, um, Gyasi relates her fear around her son playing in a, in a public park and picking up something that um, use tampon and kind of freaking her out about like what the medical options might be if her son fell sick, if um, n- realizing that um, uh, in New York, uh, black women are 12 times um, more likely to die in childbirth as white women. Like looking at, at, at these sort of, this sort of statistical landscape and this sort of practical landscape mm-hmm. uh, around her and thinking, what are my, what are my chances for my survival, my child's survival mm-hmm. kind of thing? So it freaked her out. And so she used, she used this word. And that word, I think, is, is sort of at the heart of what you're talking about in that there is a fear among black people because our pain isn't recognized, because our body, bodies aren't necessarily seen as valid, that, that we will, ca- right. Oh, we yeah. will catch something. In treatment, like we actually go to say, you know, for a checkup or to like uh, take care of a, of an issue, but then literally get worse. Like, and, and when I read, I want to add the Tuskegee um, uh, syphilis experiments to this. I, I've known about, I've heard about this since I was, you know, probably a teenager. But I've read, I finally read something about it today, 
And the thing really almost brought me to tears. I just, I, I was really horrified that we would treat human beings like this. And, you know, Gyasi, um, Gyasi sums up the, um, what happened to these men in this way. She said, she writes, the 600 men who were enrolled in the Tuskegee study were told they'd get free medical care. Instead, from 1932 to 1972, researchers watched as the men developed lesions in their mouths and genitals, watched as their lymph nodes swelled and their hair fell out, watched as the disease moved into its final stage, leaving the men blind and demented, leaving them to die. All this when they knew a simple penicillin shot would cure them. All this because they wanted to see what would happen. Now, I wanna be clear to everyone, as well, I looked it up. I looked up the, the the story in a couple of different places. Wikipedia being one of them, and penicillin wasn't always the uh, the option available. That became available later. The study started in 1932. Right. People had figured out the medical community had figured out by 1947 that penicillin would uh, cure or um, prevent the uh, yeah well cure would cure uh, essentially early the, stage the syphil- yeah, sy- early, yeah stage. early stage syphilis yeah. infection. So there is a there that that fear that she talks about that fear of uh, is is has valid roots. Yeah. So so I don't. It's hard for me to jump in on all that because you guys brought up so many uh, meaty things to to sort of chew through. Is it? one? Mm. You know, I think fear of uh, the medical care is uh, probably not just racially localized and that there are mm-hmm. people that you know sort of that that sort of denial if I, if I don't if I don't acknowledge that it's there then it's not there kind of the ostrich head in the sand approach um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which I, I, I don't doubt that that I mean that doesn't fully describe what you're talking about and, and there are two things that struck me about the Villarosa essay and, um, and and one of them is is quite um, paradoxical, which is that, so the social constructions arise, right? So the invention of, of white people and then thereby the invention of black people and then, you know, sort of the historical emergence of ethnicities, um, you know, sort of Japanese are different than Koreans and are different than Chinese, et cetera. And then, and then whatever the prevailing ideology and sort of knowledge system epistemology at that time then goes about trying to justify these these historical or sometimes arbitrary uh, partitions, these human partitions that are socially constructed. But we can't imagine, we can't, our, who we are as social primates can't settle on the arbitrary nature of our divisions. It's not enough. It's That's not enough. There must be a, a, a deeper metaphysical justification for why you are different from me, why I can treat you differently than I treat the people in my tribe, because otherwise it just doesn't add up because we want, you know, the, the impulse to, to treat people uh, equitably is also a part of our species. And so mm. once science gets on the scene, you begin to see mm. cultures trying to gin up scientific justifications for these largely bullshit social constructions. And so you get these like awful medical experiments by the Japanese on the Chinese in in Nanking. You get these awful medical experiments by the Nazis on the Jews. You get these obviously terrible, awful uh, 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 
Euro-American experiments on African-Americans. I mean, so it's, it's a manifestation of, of what in other instances is a noble human impulse, right? We can't actually deal with the manifest inequality, so we look for ways to justify the inequality. We, we, we have to justify it to ourselves. And the ways that that lingers in the current medical establishment, this the Villarosa's essay specifically draws on, which is the spirometer, which is this way to measure lung capacity, right? And so mm. in the spirometer, as Villarosa spells out, and I did some reading around this because I was really curious, like what hasn't anyone like looked at this and studied this? You know, so it, let me let me set it up for in the spirometer, there's a question in that that goes to the algorithm that determines what your lung capacity is around your ethnicity and in the doctor or the person that's doing the testing is supposed to ascribe in ethnicity when before the test is administered either by quote unquote eyeballing it or by asking the person so the doctor says why why is that even necessary so, well here's that's the so thing weird. okay I, I, well, let me let me let me get to that let me get to this so, so obviously uh-huh. originally it was necessary because of these bullshit racialized sciences around like right. you know Black people don't have the same lung capacity as white people, and so they need to be slaves right. so that they'll live. Like, this was actually one of the justifications for slavery, which is, of course, mind-blowing. Outdoor but, labor. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right, right, right. So, so it, but the you ask this question, and then when you put the, when you put the, the racial type in, it skews the results so that you get it, – it, it skews what's normal. Right. So let's let's say an R I'm I'm giving an arbitrary number. So let's say the number is 10 for full healthy lung capacity. (laughs) And you as you as a black man scored an eight. It would adjust for that and say, oh, actually, it's a 10 because you're black. Your lung capacity is different right now. That's an arbitrary number. The spirometer picks out something else. But but I mean, just for just for the purposes of illustration. So but here's the thing. It's been studied. So people have studied – there have been studies in the United States and in, uh, um, and in Europe, which has much different standards around lung capacities. And it, and it turned – now, just pause before you want to jump in because there is, a, there is a, a, a second stage to what I'm about to explain. That, okay. that there do appear to be differences based on racial type and lung capacity. But here's the thing. In the, in the um, studies that have done it, they ha- that have shown that capa- that have shown that linkage they have not controlled for socioeconomic status so uh. as, when you do control for socioeconomic status apparently there's a there was a south african study that did it disappears it's not there mm. so what is being encoded in this medical device is poverty mm. that's what's right. being concealed you're right. literally right. this spirometer right. is concealing the history right. of inequality and poverty by right. by and and of course unbeknownst to the people that are doing it right right but it, it makes it racial well okay i'm saying the people that are conducting the test right so right, right. it it conceals that the discrepancy isn't that Seth's lung capacity is naturally different than my lung capacity what it conceals mm-hmm. is that the it is more likely that that black Americans live in impoverished conditions which in which hamper their development, their cardiovascular development over white people in the United States. And so it turns that into a racial category. It essentializes what is a historical um, product. 
And it also naturalizes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. That naturalizes it. Yeah, yeah. Socioeconomic yeah. differences. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. Right, right, right. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a great. It's, okay. I mean, it's a, it's it's a great as in like mind blowing uh, essay. Uh, not great mm. as in it's obviously this is a terrible thing that, um, mm. and but I didn't. I mean, and I looked around. It doesn't. There isn't. Uh, there isn't a great deal of urgency around correcting for this. I guess. Right. I guess right. a number of medical associations essentially advocate for this adjustment in mm-hmm. um in um healthy lung capacities like african americans mm-hmm. are like 15% less and uh, asian americans are like 7 or 8 or 6 or something like that i don't know which i wow I don't like I just I mean no one can see my face I'm I'm like just like I just don't even like I just I don't I don't understand yeah. <laughs> I don't understand what is the I don't understand cuz no, no, I, I know I understand is it but I want to know for the sake of our listeners the, what I don't understand is this is I I do believe in general in the in the institutions of science and scientific inquiry and I do believe that scientists bring their own biases to the table, but that they do their best to lay those biases at the altar of truth, what in a, you know, mm. sort of scientific truth. And mm. that and that something that is so manifestly clearly a social construction mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that there has not been more movement within the scientific community, specifically the medical scientific community, to eradicate and um, eliminate this bias. So mm. I still I still find I still find it yeah, I still find it uh, uh, perhaps naively, but I still find it uh, just I'm still surprised by it. But you should be surprised by it because it's insane. I just want to point that out. People should not be like, oh, you know, that's racism. There you go. No. Yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely not. I agree. Do you know, yeah. we I cannot agree. not allow ourselves the very thing we're talking about here. So we're talking about medical apartheid. We're talking about all these different things. And then we're also saying that black people um, distrust doctors or distrust the institution. Mm-hmm. And then they're getting sicker. In some cases, right? Because they won't go to the doctor and they won't get something checked out that could have been okay at one point, but then manifest itself. So we should be outraged. We should continuously be outraged. And you can't be outraged all the time because it's just not convenient. But it needs to always be brought out. And I I don't want to be surprised. I mean, for convenience sake, I don't want to go, like I said, it's racism, but it's, I wanted you to say it out loud, you know, why you felt like it was important, because I think that we need to illustrate and kind of relate to each other in better ways around these issues, because they're confusing to me. They're confusing. Why why on earth would this motherfucking device still be in play? Why would these standards be in play? Yeah. 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 I I completely agree with that. I think it's really important that we all, and by we all, I mean, not just um, Travis, Stephen, and I, but um, everyone within the sound of my voice, where we all respond with shock when we hear things like this because mm. they are shocking. Mm. They are. We, I think it's appropriate for us to feel what? 
How is that still possible? As opposed to saying, oh, yeah, yeah, there you go, you know, those old racists. That, I, I never want to get to the point in my life where that's my response to things. Um, and now, and this is kind of a, a, a rough analogy, but the poem by William Carlos Williams is coming to mind. Um, I, 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 I probably told, uh, talked about this poem with you, Travis, but I don't think that I've ever shared this with you, Stephen. It's a poem that I really love because it, it's, it's, it's a great example of a, of a, of a tight lyrical poem. And it's, it's, it's the act, and, and I think it's like five or six lines that begins, and it begins, There were the roses in the rain. Don't cut them, I pleaded. Ah, but they won't last, she said. But they are so beautiful right where they are. Ah, we were all beautiful, she said, and cut them and gave them to me in my hand. And I love that because there, those are the sort of differing worldviews we are talking about, right? And like the person who says, with sensitivity, with, with surprise, here's this thing that is happening in the world that I did not notice. Oh my God, like, well, what is that? What is that? No, no, no. The, the, let me let, just leave it right where. Let me let me contemplate it. Let it let it let it let let it be a thing that I can I can. In this case, it's something beautiful. But let it be something I can enjoy. And there's another person who's like, eh, it's not that great. Like it's just I, I I've seen these before, and will cut them and place that shit in your hand as if to say here you go be on your way you're welcome um yeah yeah you you you're, you're <laughs> yeah, welcome you're yeah. welcome that's the yeah. right that's the way the world that's the way the world is honey so um yeah. you know scoot along that and i don't i don't want to ever be that old woman yeah. i never want to be that woman yeah i mean you know the, the the other part of me like you know so i get you know whoever it's very difficult to change institutional practices, right? I mean, it takes mm. a tremendous amount of energy mm-hmm. and will and focus and will. Mm-hmm. to change things that have been in place. And when, you know, you get moneyed interests in it, and then you get just you sort of just pure human stubbornness involved in mm-hmm. it. Um, yeah, why should we change the way we've been doing this for how many of years? Yeah, yeah. And I, and I think the thing that it, the, the thing that I find most sort of um, troubling about that essay and and this problem in particular is um, it makes me sometimes despair at our ability to clean up our historical mess. It, it, it yeah. makes me like, so we, you know, we have this podcast and you and I have, and you and I, uh, I'm sorry, the three of us use and I have these conversations and, you know, Sarah joins us sometimes and you know, I talk to my wife and, you know, I come across people and I have these, you know, uh, earnest conversations about um, what I think is, you know, a pernicious and bullshit category around how we parse people. Um, and there's lots of other people like me. And you that feel the same way about race and have the same conversations and have been having these conversations for, you know, maybe close to 100 years now, maybe not quite, but not not too far from that. Uh, and yet, here we are, here we are. this this, yeah. spir- this device that is probably in every medical office 
within, you know, 20 miles of where all of us live is Mm. baked in with an algorithm that parses Mm. us by a category that is just made up. It it just, just, you know, um, fuck. (laughs) What do you do? What do you do with that? What do you do with that? I don't, I, You, you stay the course. And you continue to spread the gospel about the fucking nonsense that it is. Yeah. That's what you do. You take a break. You get something to drink. You make love. But you re- resoundly remain human in these spaces to tell these kinds of stories. That's what I think. I mean, and like you, I don't, I've, I don't want to, um, and I, d- I hate that that interrupted you because I wanted to keep that sensitive space wide. And I didn't want to cut that off. But it was, it. I just want that urgency. It, it's my intent is, as a human, feels like there's always something to be done and something mm. to rectify and there's something to make beautiful and something to recognize as beautiful and there's spaces to make. And, you know, the busy hands of someone who's worried about, like you, the, how do you change these things? Change is so slow. It needs to happen. It's like the Nina Simone song. It's like, tell me, ghost. it's um, Mississippi, goddamn. <laughs> it's like, how much time do you need to change? But if people have these things in their... Um, offices. Early on, I gave you the side eye when you're like, these people don't know. And I'm thinking, I don't know after a while how much we can say folks are innocent. Do you know? Not everybody, of course, but I'm just thinking about somebody fucking read a journal. Somebody read, this shit doesn't work. Why in the fuck is it still happening? And so I understand the complicity. I don't know if the word's fiat, but complicity and not know it. And then other people feel like this is like you said, it's just a part of things. It's just what we do. It's like, okay, heliocentric, let, you know, where the world doesn't revolve around the, um, I mean, the universe doesn't revolve around us. We revolve around the sun. Mm-hmm. And people were killed for that kind of thing. Just mm-hmm. say, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. I'm just, I just feel like um, it, a cause for celebration is to keep your eyes open and your heart open, right? And that's what what drove me to interrupt you, and I apologize for that, Travis. But no, no, no. it's just what we need. Yeah. So, so I have a question for both of you. In looking this up, oh, rather reading these pieces and talking, preparing myself to talk about this today, I read about the J. Marion Sims statue that was removed recently mm, from Central Park. From yeah. Central, Har- yeah. from Central Park. Um, in Harlem and uh, moved to Greenwood Cemetery. And we talked last episode about how it's really important to engage in a kind of reflection that is not nostalgic, that doesn't whitewash history, mm-hmm. but that so just really embeds ourselves into the nitty gritty of it, the, the muck and the mire of, of history. Mm-hmm. Do you think ultimately that removing the statue to Greenwood Cemetery is a way for us to do that kind of gritty reflection or 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 does it shade toward the nostalgia because we're not we're not melting it down we're not we're not we're not mm-hmm. cru- we're not destroying the statue mm-hmm. we're just moving it from its place of prominence how do you think that that uh, how do you think that that and where do you think that that ends up being so for me i've actually thought about not that particular statue but i thought about that, obviously cuz removing statues is very much in in the the historical ether right now we move a lot of them mm-hmm. or, you know there's a lot of protests around them i i feel like 
engaging with the act of removing a statue and the debate around it and all the rest of that, I think feel, I feel like that is productive and I feel like that's healthy mm. and I feel like that has the potential to uh, elevate people's historical consciousness about how mm. we got to where we are. Um, mm. I am more undecided on the actual efficacy of the thing being moved. I just don't know. Mm. I don't know what kind of effect statues and things like that have on people that pass them by. Right. I'm open to, I just, it's just an open space for right. me. I don't know what I think right. about it in either, either way. Right. Yeah. Like, like you, Travis, I don't know how, um, I, I'm still, so I, I think what, what I've read and what I've thought about when people are removing Confederate statues and this sort of thing, you remove the thing and the thing becomes the actual thing that's not removed, <laughs> you know? So it's symbolic in a way, the symbolicness of moving something doesn't do it for me. Like you, if there's engagement around it, a public discussion, some kind of thing that just not moving something somewhere else. No, mm -hmm. there's something about that that feels... Um, half-assed? Half-assed, but also full ass for an American kind of con consciousness. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. And and just for our listeners uh benefit, Jay Marion Sims was called the the father of modern gynecology. The reason that the statue was removed ultimately was that lots of people were staging protests because in the course of becoming uh, this the 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 doctor that he was known to eventually known to be he had experimented on black women uh uh i think black women who were enslaved and had done it done so without anesthesia so uh basically had compromised these women's um health and safety um right. and put them on a tremendous um pain um in the name of um, scientific uh, inquiry, forwarding yeah. me medical knowledge yeah. and, 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 and his own stature. Yeah, right, yeah, right. yeah. So that's why the statue was removed. And yeah, it's, it's hard. I, 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 part of me thinks that the best solution actually would have been to cut the head off and leave the statue there <laughs> and, and then add a plaque. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, we're coming up on time, but I, I mean, I wanted to say, you know, around that, um, in, um, uh, is it? Uh, oh, geez, what, the, it's uh, in Port of Prince Haiti. Yeah, yeah they, no. they cut the, the head off Josephine. So I was going to. So I wasn't actually going to mention that one. The um, the uh, the concentration camp that was just outside of Berlin. Um, it's in Martin. It's in Martinique. Sorry. Uh, Go ahead. They the uh, Holocaust denialists, neo Nazis, burn one of the barracks um, in. Uh, in the reconstruction, in the camp reconstruction, and the German government left it burned as a reminder right. that those exactly. that those forces are not gone. So something exactly. something symbolic, like the sort of like cutting off. I mean, these kind of things can have really powerful. Um, these the symbolic gestures are not um, without uh, power and value. Is, is all agreed. I'm saying, so agreed, agreed. And if you left that 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 uh, figure headless. That I think would resonate with lots of folks. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yes, it would. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, 
So, all right, my friends, uh, another great conversation, at least for me. Um, and uh, I, uh, I, I like... <laughs> well, not for me. I was tired. Uh, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. I, I, God damn. <laughs> I, I that's uh, funny that you, I, I appreciate that. I actually meant that it was a pleasure to speak to both of you. So, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and I'll, I'll talk to you guys next week. Okay, take care. Bye.